So let's turn to Luke chapter 22, and we're going to read Luke 22, 39 through uh, the 53rd verse. And we're coming to the end of Jesus' ministry, and we've been moving through Luke for some time, and we're almost done. We've just got a few sermons left. Somebody went... It's tough moving through a whole book of the Bible, a big book of the Bible, not because we're bored, but because we're excited to get to the end, and so it's work. Uh, but we're blessed. We're better for it, uh, but sometimes a big book like Luke can, can be taxing on us. Um, but we're transformed by the scriptures um, because uh, as we hear the word of God and we hear the stories of Jesus, uh, we're changed by that. And some of you have shared with me that... Uh, this sermon series has changed you. I know it's changed me, and so we're grateful for that. And so let us hear the word of God. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow, and he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, Shall we strike with the sword? And as one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear, but Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Let us pray. Father, we thank you now for this, your word. Lord, as we look at this story in the life of Jesus during his Passion Week and his arrest in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, may we be transformed, Lord God, by this story by the truth, O oh God, that we should glean from it in the wisdom that our hearts may be convicted and convinced of it, that we may be transformed and renewed by it and leave this place different than the way we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on June 6, 1944, the Allied invasion of Europe on the beaches of Omaha and Normandy France is to this day a pivotal and decisive moment that changed world history. 
But for all of that harrowing bravery remembered in movies and films and pictures and in documentaries, we probably give very little thought to what was going on in the hearts and minds of the Allied troops leading up to the invasion. We know about what happened during the invasion, but the weeks, the days and the weeks leading up to it, we often give very little thought of what was going on in the hearts and the minds of the troops. A recovered World War II diary with all of its entries written leading up to D-Day, the invasion, and none after, demonstrate this point. The nameless soldier who authored its pages wrote that the potential, if not the certainty of death, had been occupying his mind for weeks. The fierce battle that lie ahead, the casualties that would result, the wounds and destruction and bloodshed that would be necessary on such a grand scale in order to confront the terror of the enemy was all he could think about. How would he die? When and where would a bullet or bomb tear through his body? On what nameless field or sand dune would his existence on earth come to a violent end? But, he wrote, it had to be done, and it would be done. But the anticipation was a torment in and of itself. And he tried to occupy his mind with other things, but he wrote that there was simply not much else to think about. The Garden of Gethsemane reveals the emotional agony of Jesus as he anticipated the horrors of the cross. We give probably very little thought to what Jesus was going through as he prepared to go to Calvary. The emotional agony and upheaval that he experienced. Now this is just on the heels of the scene from the Last Supper. And after the supper, Jesus left behind most of his disciples and took Peter, James, and John, the closest three. Even Jesus couldn't be close to everyone. And he was close to Peter, James, and John, and he took them to the Mount of Olives, which was a favorite place that Jesus went. He was always, when he had a moment to be alone, find his solace and solitude on the Mount of Olives. And he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which means olive press. And he took them there, and it's there that we're told by Matthew that Jesus shares with the disciples that he feels overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Crushing anxiety to the point where the thought of death and the death he was about to experience itself made him want to die. He was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he kneels down to pray in verse 42, and this is what he says in his prayer. Father, if you're willing, remove the cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping with sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
Well, up to, in this, up to this point in Jesus' ministry, if you've been reading along and following along in the book of Luke, Jesus has demonstrated indomitable courage, unwavering bravery at all of the opposition at his ministry and miracles. Courageous, utterly convinced and assured of his mission from the Father, and he focuses like a laser beam on his job and task before him to declare the kingdom of God and repentance from sin. And up until this point, he's been accompanied by the presence of the disciples every step of the way. And he is the one often giving them courage as they are fearful in the face of demons and fearful in the face of sickness and fearful as they can, are confronted by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And Jesus is imparting courage and strength to them. But this is a path that Jesus must now walk alone. When I got the call in July at the Chicago Midway Airport that my father died, Naturally, I broke into tears. It was about 6.45 in the morning on a Saturday. And I remember this feeling, this awkward feeling, crying in an airport filled with thousands of people who didn't know me. And I sat down on a bench and I cried, and there was no one there to console me because I didn't know anyone, and no one knew me. It was an experience I experienced in utter isolation, even though I was surrounded by thousands of people at the airport as I had to wait two or three more hours for a connecting flight to Los Angeles. I was headed somewhere else, but I had to switch flights. Real grief is lonely and isolating. And Jesus has never felt more alone because the cross is something that he has to do by himself. The disciples are with him in every other challenge up until this point, but the cross is something that he must do alone. He's got to go to the cross by himself. And Luke says that though an angel strengthened him, he was in agony, and he sweat. His sweat was like blood clots. He sweat like drops of blood, or as if his sweat were like clots of blood. Again, we give very little thought to the emotional life of Jesus. We tend to treat Jesus in some kind of robotic way, as if he went through life with a list of things he had to do and mechanically carried them out, void of emotional duress or anxiety or strain. This is not an easy image for our minds to grasp, that Jesus was human as well as divine. We often give so much emphasis on the divinity of Jesus, like a knob turned up on a stereo. But the other knob about Jesus' humanity is turned down very low. And the picture we have from the Gospels is that both knobs are turned up very high. And we should have not just a high view of Jesus' divinity, but a very high view of Jesus' humanity, he was not some kind of superman floating around earth carrying out the task the Father gave him, but he was truly a human being wrestling with all sorts of emotions, anxieties, and sometimes fear. 
The garden is this picture of Jesus' agony at the suffering that's before him that the Father requires him to experience. And so when Luke uses the word, Luke uses the word agony, Matthew, his word for grief is a word we would translate as despondency. And Mark uses another word of his own, deeply distressed, which can be translated as horror struck. And you put it all together, and it's an indication that Jesus was feeling acute emotional pain, causing profuse sweat as he looked with despondency and almost terror at what he was about to experience. Jesus is about to drink of a bitter cup, which he prays will be taken away so he doesn't have to drink it. And what exactly is this cup? Is it physical suffering and death? The mockery and abuse of enemies? The abandonment of his friends and his family? What is this cup that Jesus has such emotional agony over drinking? As I said a minute ago, his moral courage has been rock solid throughout. Rock solid up until this point. Indomitable courage in the face of opposition. We know from history, Plato tells the story of Socrates. Socrates was sentenced to death. And before the death sentence was carried out, his followers and disciples wept for him. They burst into tears and he, absur- he, he rebuked them for their absurd behavior and urged them to keep quiet and to be brave. Plato says that Socrates died without fear, sorrow, or protest. So was Socrates braver than Jesus? And history shines with the bravery of the disciples who were beaten and often killed, rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. In the book of Acts, we see the disciples bravely and courageously experiencing imprisonings and beatings and sometimes torture, and we know from history, also death. They rejoiced that God counted them worthy to experience those privileges. Ignatius, bishop of Antioch in Syria at the beginning of the second century, on his way to Rome, begged the church there not to attempt to secure his release, lest they should, quote, deprive him of his honor. And this is what he said, let fire and cross and companies of wild beasts, I think we have a slide of Ignatius, and the breaking of bones and tearing of limbs and all malice of the devil come upon me if only I may gain Christ. And after a few years later, Polycarp, the 86-year-old bishop of Smyrna, having refused to escape death either by fleeing or denying Christ, was burned at the stake. Just before the fire was lit, he prayed, O Father, I bless thee that thou hast counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of martyrs. And it's continued every generation since then. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, said, Oh, the joy that the martyrs of Christ have felt in the midst of scorching flames. Although made of flesh and blood like us, 
their souls could rejoice even while their bodies were burning. Now, some stories, no doubt, in the history of the church of the deaths of martyrs have been romanticized. But it's undeniable that Christian martyrs throughout the centuries went to their deaths courageously. And yet, here is Jesus in Gethsemane, the olive orchard, prostrate, sweating, overwhelmed with grief and dread, begging, if possible, to be spared the drinking of the cup. And so the cup that he feared had to be something different than just death. The cup spiritualized, excuse me, the cup symbolized the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world and what that meant. It meant bearing the divine judgment that those sins deserved. A little more about this cup that Jesus fears. According to the prophets, the Lord's cup was a regular symbol of his wrath. A wicked person was said to drink the wrath of the Almighty. Ezekiel warned, you will drink your sister's cup, he warned Jerusalem. A large cup and deep. It will bring scorn and derision for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow. The cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria, you will drink it and drain it dry. Psalm 75 is also a meditation on the universal judgment of God. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Jesus recognized the cup offered to him as containing the wine of God's wrath given to the wicked for their sins. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, makes this profound statement. The Old Testament imagery was known to Jesus. Was he to become so identified with sinners as to bear their judgment? From this contact with human sin, his sinless soul recoiled. From the experience of alienation from his father, which the judgment of sin would involve, he hung back in horror. Not that for a single instant he rebelled. His vision had evidently become blurred as dreadful darkness engulfed his spirit, but his will surrendered. And so Jesus began his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane this way, My Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But it ended. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Everything was possible with God except this. Everything was in the power of God to change except this one fact that Jesus had to suffer and drink of the cup of God's wrath against sin. It was not possible for this not to happen. Jesus had to go to the cross and he had to drink of the cup full strength. Joel Green in his commentary says this, this is the watershed moment in the passion narrative 
The critical point at, with, at which faithfulness to the divine will is embraced definitively in the strenuousness of prayer. And John's gospel in the 18th chapter records Jesus saying this. Jesus was able to say, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus' point of surrender wasn't his own will, but God's will. If the Father wills it, then so be it. This is this transitional moment in Jesus' human struggle and wrestling with the task before him in going to the cross, not because he feared death, as it were, but because he feared this moment of separation with the Father, that he would endure God's wrath against all of the world's sins, and in that moment experience alienation from the Father, an alienation of a relationship that he had from eternity past. That kind of agony, that that relationship would experience a momentary rupture in history on the cross. Jesus knew what he was in for. He knew what he was headed for. And it was not even in his own human will. But it was in the Father's will. And so he surrendered to the Father's will, saying, as we say in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And that is the critical juncture where our faith at times teeters. Surrendering our own will for the will of God. This is where obedience and faithfulness to God find their resonance and, and come to fruition in the surrendering of our will to the will of God, to the will of the Father. It's a courageous thing to pray in your daily prayers, Lord, your will be done in my life. Because we think in our mind and in our heart, well, if I just give God my laundry list of things I want God to do, surely he'll yield his will for my life and override those plans for what I want. And we think to ourselves, well, then where does prayer come in? Where does petition and asking God to answer prayer, how does it all work together? God longs for us and asks us to come to him in prayer to surrender and submit our longings and desires to him. And God does answer prayer, but there are some things that are impossible to answer because the will of the Father overrides it. The will of a sovereign God sometimes interrupts our plans. And Jesus was also agonized over that. You're not the first one to experience the agony that the will of God may be different for your life than your own will. I remember it was the day of the eclipse a year ago, I think it was in August, that I went to the urologist because I had some problems with my bladder and had, been, had blood in my urine. And it was the last of several tests to give me a clean bill of health. And I've shared the story before but he was in there with a scope looking inside of my bladder and said, you have a tumor 
And I said, what's the chance it's cancer? And he said, 95%. In other words, it's probably cancer. And it was. And I remember driving home that day, feeling acutely the shock and the horror that God's will for my life may be different than my own. I had never for a moment, even though I had prayed for many years, Lord, your will be done in my life. You just assume it always means good things, exciting things, things that we would be happy about. And it was the first time that my heart sank in my soul that I considered that God's will for my life may be to let me die in my 40s from cancer. I had never considered that God's will was not that I would live to my 90s because I've been praying since my 20s. Lord, bless me with a long life. I still pray that. Lord, let me see the salvation of my children's children's children. That one day in my early 90s, I would see my great-grandchildren in a church somewhere be baptized and then say, like Simeon and Anna when Jesus was brought into the temple as a baby, Lord, it is enough. I can die now. That's always been my heart and my desire. But I remember driving home from Mercy Hospital that day in utter shock and the, the feeling I felt in my heart that God's will may be different for my life. I had never considered that he may have had different plans for me in this regard than for me to live a very long life. And it hurt. I mean, it was shocking Because I had never considered that. And here is Jesus in the garden, the the human Jesus wants some other way to accomplish the will of God than to go to the cross and experience the divine wrath of the Almighty against sin. And he even prays, if there's another way, Lord, Let this cup, this cup, this wine of your wrath, let it pass from me. And then he says, but nevertheless, not my will, but I surrender to your will. The will of God can be both comforting and scary. If his will is your protection and endurance, it means nothing can harm you till you've completed your purpose in this world. But the will of God is also scary because it means you may not be able to avoid suffering and tragedy and travesty, and this is the life of faith, joining Christ in his sufferings. Now, all human beings suffer, but we don't suffer alone. We suffer with the comfort and presence of Almighty God and do not have to endure that moment of God-forsakenness on the cross that Jesus experienced for you and me. As he went to the cross and experienced the wrath of God for your sins and for my sins. All of the aggregate of our suffering does not amount to what Jesus experienced All of the agony of disappointment that our lives have not gone the direction or the route we expected them to. You know, very few people will say in middle age that their life is what they exactly thought it would be. So that's the nature of life in a fallen world, in a broken world, racked by sin. 
But none of our God-willed struggles will ever equal Jesus' experience of the wrath of God that he suffered for us so that we wouldn't have to. None of our suffering compares to his unequivocal sacrifice and surrender, the sense of self-abandonment to the will of God in going to the cross so that we wouldn't have to, so that we might be forgiven because of what Jesus did for us in going to the cross. And for that, that agony, that surrender of personal will to the will of God means we will rejoice for all of eternity at the fact that one paid the price for all of us. And that's Jesus. And that's what happened on the cross. So let us pray when we're perplexed at life circumstances. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Let's pray. Father, now we stand in the face, many of us, at perplexing circumstances of tragedy, loss, and suffering, of grief, the acute emotional pain that Jesus felt is a glimpse into our own sense of inner turmoil and wrestling for those who have as experienced mental anguish or depression. Bewilderment that life did not yield to us exactly what we wanted from it. And yet we look at Christ's own suffering and agony. that solidarity with all human beings in suffering. When Jesus went to the cross and suffered that agony, that acute emotional pain of feeling that he was about to do something that he didn't want to, and yet surrendered in obedience to God. And Father, we pray now that our hearts may join Jesus in that sense of surrender not that we don't grieve or mourn the losses of life and circumstances that bring pain, but rather that we would know, O oh God, that your will being brought to pass is for your glory, and it's for our good, and for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.